Welcome to The View magazine's Rebel Justice Podcast. I'm Trustan Kent. This is the second in our refugee series following our last episode, an interview with the brilliant human rights lawyer Deborah Kayambe. Check it out if you haven't already. In this second episode, we'll be speaking to Abdul Wahab Tahan, a Syrian refugee who's since moved to Hong Kong working as a lecturer, journalist and academic, as well as a stand-up comedian and podcast producer. Abdul created the fantastic podcast Integrate That, a show that can be moving, harrowing, oftentimes hilarious, to center refugee voices and stories in a media climate where they can be very often denied a platform. What's worse, according to a 2017 Council of Europe report, Europe-wide press coverage promoting hate speech and hostility towards refugees was systematic and persistent. Abdul talks to us today about some of the media's issues here and his experiences in challenging it. So what inspired you to create the Integrate That podcast? Well, to be honest, I created the Integrate That podcast because I didn't see myself in most of the coverage on, on mainstream media. Most of the coverage on mainstream media or of some people who are living a miserable life, like some people dying while crossing from one country to another, or people living miserably in a tent. Or on the other hand, some people going to Oxford to study, right? Like Malala, for example. And I don't see people in between, you know, just regular everyday people, your uh, average Joe, uh, you can say. So I thought, there, there's a gap in the market for that. And, and, and there is, there should be some representation of our voices, things that we would like to talk about. Usually the stories that you see on mainstream media of refugees, someone doesn't speak the language, arrives in this country, picks up the language, gets a job somewhere, and that's it. But there are so many things, so many other things we would like to talk about. So I, I just picked up a mic, bought a mic and started talking to people. That's why I created, integrate that to talk about things we refugees would like to talk about. Amazing. What were some of the um, experiences or interactions that you most enjoyed? Did the project go any directions that you weren't expecting? Well, I enjoyed uh, talking to to people so much. I mean, it's one of the things that I really, really like. It's um, There's kind of like an instant spark with the people that I talk to because we have shared experiences. And, you know, it's like going to a concert, you know, and you see people going to the same concert of your favorite singer, for example, you both know what's it like to listen to these songs and you both enjoy it. That's why you're both here. And it's a little bit like this. I mean, I talked to, to, to refugees who are kind of fed up, been like, been through it. So we can talk and laugh about stuff that a lot of people would, would find it inappropriate to laugh about because they think that, oh, it's too traumatic to, to laugh about. But because it's, it's too traumatic and the things are really disturbing, and we've been through it, so both of us would understand it. So we find, I think, comedy is, is a way to vent out a lot of stuff. And I remember the first episode in season one was about mental health. It's a very, very serious topic. And then my, uh, you know, the, my guest and I, we were talking about it, and we were laughing about a few things that we have to go through. Like, I was explaining to him how 2013 and 2014, I was talking to a, a psychologist, and I was telling the psychologists, everything I've been through. And I remember the look on their face. They're like, they were very uncomfortable with what I was saying. And for me, I was, you know, giving like have a very, very poker face, like saying like, as if you're telling me, oh, I went to the pub and I had a pint, you know, 
um, <laughs> very, very, you know, everyday stories for us. And so both of us laughed about it. And then I discovered this as I started doing some comedy that a lot of people feel a little bit uncomfortable laughing at other people's misery if they don't have the permission. So I would usually tell people that it's okay to laugh about these things. I'm sharing these things because we fun- we think they are funny. It's okay. You don't have to mm. be PC all the time. And I understand a lot of people are PC, you know, so sometimes it's difficult to, I don't know, to put that aside or to, to, to just enjoy a story from someone else's perspective without complicating it. Is it sort of like community forming with the humor and the shared experiences? Is it bridging between people? And is like the humor helping to move forward? I, I think you don't have an option, really, you know, um, because you're you're living in a new country and you don't know the system. So you have to learn the system from, from, from scratch. And then when you meet someone else who's been through this or going through this, and then you tell each other about these things and you just, I don't know, you just find it funny and then you start laughing about it. and and, and then you develop kind of like a relationship because you've both been facing this. Like uh, one of the things that I was very naive when I first arrived in England and I thought you can get a job by applying to a job, by sending a CV in a cover letter. And later I found, no, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know, networking and, and connections. And, 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 you know, this is something I started telling other people. And they're like, they would tell me stories how, when they arrived as well, they started sending all these applications and doing this stuff to get some jobs. We, then we start comparing this to, to, to our, our lives. Or, for example, getting a, a passport, how to get a passport, for example, in the UK. And in the UK, it takes months to, to get a passport. And there is something called, I think, by the Home Office called Fast Track, where you can pay extra money to, to get a passport. In Syria, for example... The fast track is you give you you pay a ten dollars bribe or ten pounds bribe to the officer and you get it delivered to your home address in the same day, right? Uh, that's the fast track. You know, if you don't know how to drive a car and you want a driving license, there's, there's a fast track for that. You know, you pay the officer some money and they give it to you. You know, the driving license. So we have fast track as well, but it's completely different fast tracking. Mm. So integrate that you. Partially set it up to fill a vacuum, you said. What is some of the ways that the media doesn't do this story justice? Or what are some of the flaws with how the media talks about issues with refugees? One of the most, one of, I think one of the problems that about mainstream media is that they don't have, there's no representation of minorities and there's not enough diversity. A lot of places now say, oh, we have a lot of diversity, but diversity comes in the, in the room where decisions are made. So that's where, if, if you really care about diversity, then you need to start to hire people from diverse backgrounds who are going to make decisions. I'll give you an example. Last year on, on BBC and on Sky News, they covered this refugee crisis, people crossing from France to, to England uh, on boats, and they were filming them. And, and they were shouting at them, hey, where are you from? Where are you going? <laughs> like, does it really matter where they're from? Of course, they're coming from Cali. They're refugees. Where are you going? They're on a boat going to England. Where do you think they're going? They're not going to the, to, to the pub, right? Uh, this was very, very unethical. So if there was anyone from a diverse background or anyone with some who studied ethics, they would tell them, hey, what are you doing? This is very unethical. 
So there are a lot of unethical practices uh, covering the refugee crisis, for example, covering the the war. Whenever there is war, you, you'll see a lot of journalists who are so excited about war. I mean, there's a lot of war fetishism. They, they love it. You know, they, they put on this vest and says press and they go somewhere, they stand in front of a destroyed building and they feel important. You know, most of these people don't even speak the, the local language. Most of these people don't know anything about the culture or they can't really tell you where this country is on the map before the war. And then they go and cover this war as if there are no local journalists. And this is very unethical. One of the things that I saw in a documentary about, about this, I forgot the name of the documentary, where back when refugees started to leave Europe and cross to, 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 to leave Syria, sorry, and cross to Europe, to, to Turkey, to, um, to Greece through Turkey, a lot of journalists started going to these small islands where refugees started arriving on boats, right? And they will take pictures and photos of them. There was a, a video of a little girl where she saw the journalist pointing her camera at her. She put her hands up because she thought this is a weapon. She thought this guy is a sniper. And this is what you do because if you all, all of, all your life, she was like, I think four years, five years old, all your life, you were born and raised in the war. And when people point at you, you are told to raise your hand up. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a camera and a weapon. And this was very, very, very unethical. You have to, to, to learn to know the culture of these things. This is just one example. Another example, sending people who don't know anything about the culture to cover it. I remember BBC, this is not a dig on BBC, by the way. They, they sent Stacey Doyley, one of their stars, very typical British reporter, who used to cover things not around war or politics, doesn't speak Arabic, of course. She went to cover the uh, prisoners of ISIS in a camp in Syria. She doesn't speak the language or doesn't know anything about the culture. One of the people in the video was doing this. Just to explain to listeners, Abdul is pointing upwards. And she said, oh, this is the ISIS sign. And this is not the ISIS sign. I mean, if, if, you, if you speak any Arabic or if you know anything about the religion of the people. This is, means there's only one God. This means also one. You see a lot of athletes, when they finish, they cross the line, they raise their, their finger as number one. And a lot of Muslims do it to say that there's only one, one God. She said, oh, this is the ISIS sign. And some people pointed out that this is not the ISIS sign and complained on Twitter. Her producer took down that line the next day, but she never apologized. So you see a lot of these things happen. You see violations of Geneva Agreement, you see unethical practices, and it's all good because you, you send these reporters to cover a third world country, Syria or Afghanistan or whatever. But these things don't happen when people are trying to cover Ukraine, you know? Um, I've, I've seen a lot of racism <laughs> in, the, uh, in the coverage of Ukraine. Said, oh, oh, but this is not Middle East. This is Europe. Uh, yeah, so what? These people have blonde hair and blue eyes. <gasps> what? I don't know. A lot of uh, practices, unethical practices, I think, again, goes back to the lack of diversity and inclusion, I guess. Mm. Is there any motivation behind why journalists so consistently approach these stories in this way? I have no idea why they would do it. 
I, I, I totally believe that they all have good intentions. But again, good intentions are not good enough. Only God judge people by intention. <laughs> this is a very famous verse that in Islam, of course, I don't know about Christianity, that God judges people by their intention. But again, the intention alone is not good enough. You need to act upon it. You need to, to say these practices are not ethical. There's no neutrality. This is the thing. It's impossible to have neutrality. You cannot say, oh, I don't have a say in it. I need to be neutral. No, you cannot be neutral. When journalists are covering the war in Ukraine, they're not neutral. They're saying that this is an unjust war. Putin are killing people. These are victims, blah, blah, blah. The same standards are not being applied to other victims. You know, mm. you would see the BBC and you see it destroyed my, my city, Aleppo. And I remember the reporter said, oh, we can't know for certain how this building got destroyed. Well, there's only one 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 party who has airstrikes and, and planes and the other doesn't. So who did that? You know, so it's, it's not OK. Uh, so the intentions are always good that they want to cover stories. They want to. Feature these people, they want to feature different people in their reports, but this is not good enough. If it doesn't come from top, you know, things don't come from the top uh, with instructions that, hey, listen, you cannot just feature someone. You need, you need to ask them to take uh, ownership of their story, you know, bring more of it. Not, don't just make them your interviewer. These people are going to be a collaborator, you know, collaborate together to create a story. And I've seen this good practice. I don't know if you know uh, Sally Hayden. She writes for the Irish Times and she's worked for with a number of refugees and as a collaborator. And she's won a couple of awards for her work because every time she approaches one of these stories, she's herself not a refugee, of course. But if she's going to talk about refugees issues, she works with, with refugees and she works as a collaborator with them. She co collaborates in order to create something. And these people, you know, she, she gives them credit for it. She doesn't take all the credit for herself, even though she could, but she doesn't. And this is the right way, I think, if you want to do something really, and you want to do it right, this is the, the, the role model to do it, I guess. Mm -hmm. With the pressures on why the media does get this wrong, sometimes I'm confused whether it comes from the top, because at the minute, the government seems to be, in the UK, really seems to be trying to outdo one another in how cruelly they're talking about refugees and the media is just really going along with it or do you think it also comes from the bottom like it's just kind of reflecting the fact that most people don't know a, a refugee themselves personally they're very maybe in the dark about some of the lived experiences of refugees what do you think about those two pressures i think you cannot really blame the regular people everyday people because this is not the responsibility to go out and find someone from a, a different background to them it's very difficult if you ask me now to find uh, someone I, th I don't know even a U ukrainian refugee for example i wouldn't be able it's not it's not like they live in a cave and i go to that cave and i see where they are right it's impossible so it's very difficult but if you are a, a newspaper or if you are a, a mainstream uh channel like bbc sky or all these you know you have a moral obligation in order to do the things right you you, you can you should not follow whatever the government's guidelines are you, you cannot just accept the narrative. You need to find a different way because when you want to do things right, you can do things right. When you want to do uh, some investigations, you can do great investigations and they have done great investigations when they wanted to. So you can, you have all the tools. So 
I think it's it's a very top down. It's not bottom up at all. You know, a small podcast like my podcast, for example, can only do so much, right? Like I would reach how many? 2,000, 3,000 listeners per episode. That's all I can reach, right? But for example, a BBC podcast can reach millions of people. A Sky News report can reach millions of people. So whatever we do on a grass level, grassroots level, is just good enough to raise awareness among people who are seeking to know more about specific topic. But if you need real change, then you need the support of all the the papers and the 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 major news articles. You know, the prime minister position, for example, they're always supported by newspapers, right? The Daily or the Mirror or whatever, right? They write a lot of good stories about them. I don't know. Without um, mainstream news organizations behind you, I don't really think that you can make a difference. And who controls them? It's the top down. It's not bottom up. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. Well, this is why we need to integrate that, right? So you're a comedian, podcaster, academic, lecturer. What's next for you? Any projects in the pipeline? Is there going to be another series of Integrate That? What's what's around the corner? I'll try to make a one season every year because it's, it's self-funded. I don't get funding from any place. Sometimes, you know, I got the funding from here and there, like, couple of hundreds that's it and then everything else is self-funded my editor leo chic is a wonderful wonderful very professional editor who works for free uh she's a volunteer she's awesome and that's it so we try to make one uh, season a year I'm, I'm trying to make season three to be all about love stories and matchmaking and, and how people meet because there's a lot of juicy stories <laughs> about how refugees get married you know uh especially because now we're not living in Syria, we're out. So many funny and interesting stories I would love to explore. But that's for next year. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, Abdul Abtahan, thank you so much for coming on the Rebel Justice Podcast. Wish you all the best for the future. Uh, Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. like to listen to Abdul's work, you can search Integrate That on most podcast streaming services or go to shows.acast.com slash integrate dash that. We definitely recommend it. Make sure you catch the next episode coming out soon where we'll be discussing the issues facing LGBTQ plus people claiming asylum who've historically been placed in a position where the ability to claim asylum requires you to somehow prove your sexuality or gender identity to an oftentimes disbelieving member of the Home Office. I'll be speaking with Dr. S. Chelvin, a human rights lawyer, himself identifying as queer, whose work seeks to end some of the most disgraceful practices of the Home Office by having created the DISH model, a humane and positive tool for processing LGBTQ asylum claims that has led to countless successful applications for refuge around the world. That's on our next episode. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Justice Podcast.